Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm very excited to have you along. My guest today is Dr. Freddie Heber, and we're talking about her new book, Teaching Words and How They Work. But before we get to that, I just wanted to wish you all well in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been a very busy month for me, and I'm sure it's been very busy for you with larger societal things going on, but also you know, moving all of our teaching online and, and whether, you know, whether you're at a university or whether you're, you know, in the classroom uh, with, with young minds, it's it's been uh, quite the task, hasn't it, to move and be online and, and, and doing this thing in a way that we weren't really planning on, you know, not too long ago. So in the midst of all this, I wish you and your families well. I wish you to be healthy and I wish the very best for your online experiences We're all in uncharted territory here for the next little bit, so stay safe and stay healthy out there. If anyone has any literacy-related experiences or stories that uh, have emerged from this online migration, just drop me a line at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you're into small town AM radio, I was recently a guest on a 610 KVNU's For the People show. It's just a local radio show with a few other teachers. And we were talking about uh, the transition to online learning and how it was going. If you're interested in that, you can go check it out at kvnutalk.com. And then you can find For the People. And our discussion is the April 9th episode. So with that, let's get to today's episode. Developing readers will likely encounter thousands of unfamiliar words over the course of a school year. How will you teach those words to your students? My guest today is Dr. Freddie Heber, and she has some excellent insight to this conundrum in her new book, Teaching Words and How They Work. Dr. Heber has actually been lurking in the background of our show for a few episodes. Our previous episode, episode 12 with Dr. Emily Hayden, uh, Dr. Heber was a co-author on that study that Dr. Hayden completed, and she's also, Dr. Heber's done quite a bit with uh, comprehension-based silent reading rate And then clear back in episode two, I interviewed Dr. John Z. Strong, and we had a fantastic conversation about text complexity and supporting students in difficult text. Uh, So the co-authors with Dr. Strong wrote another article with Dr. Hebert that was really influential for Dr. Strong's article. I couldn't be more excited to bring Dr. Hebert on the show. She's been very influential for me, you know, both as uh, an emerging scholar, but then also in my fourth grade classroom, um, I've, I've really enjoyed and appreciated her ideas. So if you're not familiar with Dr. Heber and her work, I highly recommend it. Enjoy our show today where we're talking about words and how they work. After that, uh, you can stick around for my two cents. Dr. Freddie Hebert, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It's my privilege to be here, Jake. 
so you've been very influential in reading research for the past couple decades, and you have a new book that's out called Teaching Words and How They Work, Small Changes for Big Vocabulary Results. I'm curious, why did you write this book? What does this book have that I can't find in other books that are on vocabulary instruction? Unlike many areas of literacy research, there are some new insights around vocabulary. The reason for these new insights is that the digital revolution has meant um, a cornucopia for those of us who study vocabulary. Because books can be scanned, we have these large databases of, of words. And for example, in my own work, I have at least 10,000 texts that are used in schools that have been scanned. And I have a text analyzer. So I can put a text through this text analyzer, and I can tell you something about the overall profile of all the words in the text. And I can also tell you about the individual characteristics of words. So in my analyzer, you know, this, this field has just grown immensely over the last 15 years. So in my um, analyzer, I can look at how frequently this word is predicted to appear in, in written English, um, its concreteness, at what age do we predict that it's gonna appear in kids' oral language. And once we have that knowledge, that access, that means that you know, graduate students don't have to be counting individual words in text, which was how people like uh, Thorndike, who was the first person to really come up with a story about how many words there were in written English. He really had to count on people, you know, hand scoring words. So we've got access to this immense wealth of knowledge. And with that information, we can now tell you a lot about the most frequent words in, in text. And I'm not just talking about you know, the 220 words or how many ever words that, you know, Ed Fry or um, Dolch identified. I'm talking about, we can say, these are the words that are likely to appear in the primary grades, in the intermediate grades, these words will be added. In high school, these are gonna be frequent words. We can also compare narrative and informational text at different grade levels. So this book, brings this recent information, evidence-based information, to teachers and talks about how that can be useful in designing instruction. That sounds like a seismic shift to me in that, you know, rather than taking a small set of, of stories and analyzing them, that you can have thousands and thousands that are, you know, systematically reviewed and, and compared by genre and, and text structure. Cetera. So that's, I think that's a compelling rationale for why the book was needed. Yeah, I think as, as I said right at the beginning, I, I don't see another aspect of reading research that has been changed as significantly as our understanding of vocabulary. I'm excited so, to get into some of that then, about, the, about you yeah, know, some of the I changes mean, in the, modern yeah, the ways. The digital revolution it. has meant that we can understand, it's not just that we have all these books that have been analyzed, but people have gotten these databases so that you can understand the characteristics of, of words. I was talking about concreteness, age of acquisition. We can talk about 
for example, how frequently particular um, bigrams and trigrams occur in written language. So there's just a wealth of information that we have. One of the framings of the book is small changes for big results. So why do you advocate for small changes to get big results? And what are some ideas or ways that teachers can think about that concept in the classroom? I've been in education for some time. And very early in my career, I got to be involved in a national report, Becoming a Nation of Readers. And I saw what can happen when people take ideas, and they may be well-researched, but it may be that the implementation hasn't been well-researched. Okay, the cognitive processes have, but not what this means for instruction. And I've seen what happens when a state like California and Texas made massive changes in the kinds of texts that they were uh, mandating for the kids to use in their states. Okay, so that's where the authentic literature movement came from. What I've seen is the consequences of advocating for, for big changes when we haven't got all the information we might need for implementation. So if you think of um, in your career, you know, you've seen the Common Core State Standards. And there were a fairly um, big shift in what people were being told about text complexity. There was some information underlying that. It wasn't completely validated in terms of the perspective that was taken. But when we make some of these massive changes, sometimes they kind of run away from us. I mean, it's, it's too much too quickly. And I believe this is from my personal experience in life, that if you're going to really take on a big problem, it helps to, to take one step and then another step and so forth. So it isn't that I have to, you know, um, be sprinting, but rather that I need to understand what is the possibility of changing a particular perspective. So an educator listening to this podcast could say, oh my goodness, you know, Freddie's talking about really a seismic shift as you described it in vocabulary. Oh my God, I can't make that. That's gonna to be too hard for me. And what I'm suggesting is, are there some conversations that you could have with your students that could uncover some things about how words work that they haven't understood before. For example, lots of times we think that the texts have gotten so much harder, the students can't read them. And so I need, as a teacher, to read the text for the kids. Well, it actually turns out if teachers do the reading, they get better at reading and the kids don't necessarily get better at reading. You actually need to be able to do something to get better at it. So what I'm suggesting is, if I help my students understand that by the end of second grade into third grade, the majority of the words in the text are ones that I've probably encountered before, I might not be really facile with those, those words because I haven't read that much. But if I keep reading more, 
you know, at least 90 to 92% of the words in the third or fourth grade text are going to be ones that I've encountered before, and they're going to be in families of words. Okay, so if kids can start to understand that, they can also understand that whenever I approach a new text, there are likely to be a handful of new words for every hundred words I, I see. That doesn't mean that I'm not a good reader because I don't know all those words or haven't seen them before. That's how texts work, especially when they're authentic texts that have been written by trade book writers who aren't thinking about will kids be able to grasp that word. What they're th thinking about is what's the best word to tell the story. Okay? So to me, that insight on the part of a child that, you know, I can do the majority of this, but there are always going to be some new words, which is absolutely great if you think about it, because that means I'm learning something. Because, you know, it's not just about words, it's about the knowledge that the words communicate. Absolutely. Yeah, as a classroom teacher, I love the idea of just the small tweaks and changes that, uh, you know, at least in my, in my experience, you know, I haven't had, you know, a, a complete revolution with my teaching. It's just been every year, it's, you know, or even week by week sometimes of that adjacent other of how do I tweak this and how do I tweak this? And, and I think over time I've become a better teacher, but that's, um, I think, a wise way of, of making, I guess, change more sustainable than, you know, than just trying to recreate the wheel. So let's get into a little bit of, of what you talked about with vocabulary. So what is the relationship between vocabulary and text? And what does this mean for how we should focus our instruction around teaching vocabulary? Well, words are the very essence of who we are as human beings, and especially written words. So other species, as far as we know, I mean, we know that honeybees have a very elaborate way of communicating, but they don't have a way of recording it permanently. The same with dolphins, right? But, but as human beings, we can record what we know from one generation to another. And what that means is we can build on knowledge. So words, you can think of it kind of as a seed or a kernel, you know, they're the center of knowing things. So what I as a teacher want to do is get my kids to learn new material, new ideas, new knowledge. And one of the primary ways I do that is not just individual words. What I talk a lot about in this book is that words aren't individual islands just floating by themselves. And often when we talk vocabulary and reading, we've taken six to eight words a week from a particular text, and those words don't connect in any way. So what this to me is a small change. When I'm looking at a particular text, for example, on earthquakes, what would be the most essential words that I would want kids to be learning? And to me, a small change is, can we have some records of those words? You know, can we, can we record what the words are and can we see how they connect to each other? In stories, 
the connections might be very different than in social studies or science texts. In a story, it might be the author, for example, Frank Baum in um, The Wizard of Oz, does a lot to describe how dazzling and glittering and sparkling the Emerald City is. A writer of a narrative doesn't keep using that same adjective or adverb or even verb over and over again. The quality of the writing is by how, how rich that vocabulary is. But the ideas connect. And that's what kids need to understand. So if I can understand, it's not, it's not just learning one particular word, it's learning the connection of that word to other ideas that mean something similarly. So it's the power then is in teaching almost a network of words of, of rather than teaching, like let's say you, you were gonna do six to eight words every week, rather than doing six or eight isolated words, doing six or eight words that are all of a related meaning that connect to the, the text that you'll be using that week. In the right, classroom. so when I start looking for the words that describe the, the trail of tears, I stop just picking out a single word like rugged or steep. And I start looking for words that have to do with um, anguish and with um, burdens and with pain. And I start seeing that in that story. Once I start putting a lens of what this story is about or what this informational text is about, I stop just having these random words. I have words that are conceptually tied to the theme of the story or the informational text. And I have words that are connected to each other. So I have words that have to do with motion. So for example, in a story about a musical family where one child isn't very musical, Annie's gifts, what, what we see is you start developing a network of not just six to eight words, but maybe you know, 25 to 30 words that are connected by similar meanings or have to do with the topic. For example, we might have different kinds of musical instruments, or we might have different sounds that instruments make, or we might have the way in which the character who doesn't share this talent with her family might be feeling. Okay, so that's one kind of connection. It's a semantic connection. Then I might also start seeing that once I know a particular word, like essence, I start seeing a word like essential. So I start seeing the connections and meaning that are part of the root words, the endings related to words, the prefixes, and so on. So I stop just saying, oh, I, I want, I need to learn this word, I mean, which is kind of how we were taught to get ready for the SAT or the GRE, right? Mm -hmm. What I want to do is see how, you know, a word like I pledge allegiance, that how allegiance is related to other words, both in its meaning and also in its structure. I think that's a fascinating way of approaching vocabulary. I you know, so many words that we use in English are 
on a, a gradient or there's nuanced differences, you know, between the two. And as often it's, I can, you know, sometimes it's easier for me to explain a word by what that word isn't than it is to explain, you know, the word by what it, what it is. And, and if you just approach it that way of, you know, I'm going to teach all of these words because they are so similar rather than just teaching one, you know, isolated. I, I think that's very powerful, you know, a way just to make practical use of your time as an educator. Yeah. And, and then there's another really important part about how language works. And that is that when we come up with new ideas, we have to have new labels for those ideas. I mean, it's all about knowledge. Vocabulary is all about knowing things. And it turns out that we don't just put a series of sounds together to make a new word. So if you look at the movie industry, I mean, where did that word come from? Well, it was moving pictures. But if you look at some of the words within the industry, I've been fascinated with the word trailer. You know, why did they come up with trailer? So I'll do a, um, you know, a study of a word like that. Or um, most, many, many words, not all words, but many words, the less frequent a word, the less likely it has multiple meanings. But the most frequent words we have, if you think of a word like field, you know, we can, we can field a ball, we can see a field, we can talk about the field of medicine. So there are, a word gets used many, many ways when we invent computers. You know, suddenly we have a whole new meaning of the word mouse. So then with English, um, this was one of, I mean, the whole book I thought was just so informative, but where you talk about the history of English and why it matters was something that I was just a major, major takeaway for me. So or in thinking about vocabulary, um, why does the history of English matter with, with the words we use every day and the vocabulary we teach? Well, it matters a lot because new ideas use different kinds of words from our history. So English started out as being a Germanic language. And if you've ever been in Germany or know someone who is German and um, like myself, <laughs> what you realize quickly is that in German, the words in the main are fairly small words. I mean, if you think of words like get, bet, fret, met, the ET in those words doesn't share a meaning. So what you do is you take these relatively small words and you put them together in compounded words. And so to be able to read new words, it really helps to know that a lot of words in English, especially pretty common words, are going to be compounded. So if I see the word firehouse, I'm also going to need to approach that because it's not going to be a family of words like in the Latin-based level of English, which we're going to get to in a minute. I mean, a greenhouse, when we talk about the greenhouse effect, a greenhouse is not necessarily a greenhouse. Typically, it'll be a glass house, right? If I have a greenhouse out in my backyard. And a firehouse isn't a house on fire. So when we think about how we make words to fit new ideas from this Germanic layer of English, Anglo-Saxon is what the language was, that the Anglos and the Saxons spoke, who, who um, populated 
um, Great Britain, well, like, excuse me, mostly England, because the people who spoke the original languages in the, in the British Isles went to Wales and Scotland and Ireland, and that's a different kind of language. So this is, this is really important to know. Oh, you know, when I look at a new text, there are likely going to be some compound words in it if it's a topic that I haven't read before. Okay. So that's, that's the first layer. And then we look at, you know, the, the Normans came and conquered the British Isles, and they brought a version of French. And for some time, there was a French layer and a German layer. And the people who worked on farms and who uh, chopped things in the forest, they chopped down trees, they, they, they're using those smaller words, right? But the people who worked, who were in the aristocracy, who were in the ecclesiastical system, who worked in libraries, who were literary people, they used French-based words. And in a French-based word, there aren't, I mean, in, in Latin, um, of which Spanish is part or derives from, you know, you aren't seeing all these tiny little words. You know, they're most, they're typically multisyllabic. And if I want to change the meaning of one of the words, you know, like essential, I might say non-essential. Okay? So there are ways in which we derive and manipulate words in the French layer. This is important to know because it also means that when you get into the literary and academic levels of language, there are going to be a lot of words that are connected in this way, like national and international. You know, they're going to be a whole network. So, so you don't have to learn everything individually. And then once you get into the very technical words, which typically come from Greek, you come back to a compounding system. But in that compounding system, unlike the Anglo-Saxon layer, where the meanings are idiosyncratic, like firehouse and greenhouse, works with playhouse, you know, that's usually a house that you play in. But when you get to the Greek, you know, like um, geography, biology, the meanings of those, those components stay the same over time in, in different words. So the, as, as, a, as a child, I mean, I think I'm not talking about a first grader. I'm talking about, you know, kids as they're moving into third and fourth grade. This is important to know about, not to memorize. This isn't about memorizing, oh, that word is that, you know, comes from that origin. It's just anticipating that certain kinds of words can do certain kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's I think how we've treated the English language is, is if we didn't ki tell kids algorithms in mathematics and gave them story problems and wanted them to discover the algorithms themselves. What I'm suggesting here is it helps to have somebody talk to you about this. I'm not saying they have to be big, long lessons, nor do they have to be like memorize all the prefixes and suffixes. I'm not a fan of that. I would rather that you were using things in context and then began collecting groups of words and began to see the similarities across them. Because some of those prefixes and suffixes, well, the prefixes at least, can take on a couple different meanings. And keep remembering that over time, words change. 
You know, if you look at some words, we actually have some words in our language that sound exactly the same and are written exactly the same, but have really different histories. You know, like the word bank, B-A-N-K, or bear, B-E-A-R. So you have to have, people are describing this in one literature now as variability, a sense or a set for variability. I think that that's an important thing to think about. They're really talking about that in relation to um, um, approaching the decoding of words. But I think you also have to approach words that way in terms of their meaning. I think that's powerful. You know, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that, you know, words that are used the most frequently uh, tend to have the most meanings as well. And, and you call that uh, recycling and remixing uh, in the book. Can you expound a little bit on those, those concepts and what the difference between the two are? Yeah. So, well, if you think about recycling, we take something and then we use it again, right? So if you think about a word like mouse in a computer environment, it's taken on a totally new meaning. Remixing to me is when you put words into compounds or you make phrases with words, you know, because we frequently, we have phrases that can have some pretty unique meanings as well, right? Like house of representatives isn't just, it isn't like a firehouse or a playhouse or a greenhouse. It's a certain, very specific meaning there. So to me, recycling has to do with multiple meanings. Remixing has to do with when we take words and we put them in compounds and we put them in different kinds of phrases. And in the, the issue of phrases, you know, there's a lot we don't know about that. Um, you know, how kids learn those and how best to teach some of them. Because you have to anticipate also, you know, that there are going to be some of these, especially in social studies. Science, yes, but social studies in particular, there are lots of these, what I call compound phrases. Some people call it, call, call them, you know, complex compounds. I think they're comp compound phrases, but I think that can be important. And lest I forget, keep remembering that, you know, when you're looking at a text and you're thinking that there are going to be a handful of new words in every hundred, keep remembering there's a big chance that at least one of those words is going to be a proper name. And proper names are different. I mean, in their language of origin, a proper name usually has a meaning, you know, has a meaning like the word Detroit means straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, having to do with water, right? Because Detroit was on the, the French explorers um, who came there first, you know, used that term to describe that place but that's usually not how we think of it and unlike other words proper names like um you know the name of a state i live in california you live in utah those those typically there there can be a few um, morphological family members like californian but not a lot more than that. So they aren't in morphological families in the same way. And one of the other things about proper names is they can often retain a link to the pronunciation of origin. And that can make it a, a really um, kind of challenging task for some kids. I think especially if you speak, if, if, if English isn't your native language, sometimes it's hard to know what to do with proper names. Um, I, I certainly found that because English 
wasn't my native language, it was German. And, and you know, my, my first name actually has a, has a shift in how it's pronounced when it's anglicized. And, and, and I think, um, especially when names get into multiple syllables, like that can be a tricky thing for kids. And I think we haven't done very much to help them. You know, some of the names, um, like the names of Greek heroes, you have to learn some of those, you know, or Ben Franklin or George Washington or, you know, Abe Lincoln, their names to, to remember. But a lot of the names in some of the texts, especially the kinds of texts that appear on state assessments, probably not, you know? So how, how do you deal with the ones that matter and the ones that you don't? Yeah, that's tricky. You know, I hadn't given much thought to proper nouns, but it, you know, certainly it's just interesting how that would affect the comprehension of, you know, even if a student doesn't pick up on that, that it's a, a proper noun, I'm sure that, you know, happens frequently as well. Um, where all of a sudden they're having to infer meaning when really it's just a name or, you know, tricky issues along, you know, along that line. And sometimes it's a very arbitrary name. So at some point, you know, it, it seemed like somebody decided it was more uh, supportive for kids if they saw a broad range of names, especially on assessments. I don't know who thought that, but I, I've never seen any evidence that that helps you. You know, like, does it make me feel more at home if I see a, a, a strange name in a text that might have something to do with, you know, my geographic location or something? I don't know. Um, but I think we haven't, um, we haven't attended to what that could mean. There's really very little we know about how kids process proper names. And what I'm actually saying is I think it becomes a problem when proper names become multisyllabic, especially, you know, three syllable and so on. So then how are the networks of vocabulary different between, you know, narrative text and informational text, or are there differences between patterns of vocabulary in those two genres? Well, that's, for me, one of the exciting areas of the research that's kind of exploded as a result of the opportunity to do digital analysis. So one of the things um, I was aware of for a long time, because I did a lot of work on fluency, and I knew that I mean, my stance always was to, um, you know, I did a program where, where I developed passages and it was always with informational text. Because in informational text, it makes sense to repeat a word that, that's, that's central to the topic. You know, a mathematician doesn't run to a thesaurus to look for a different word for equation. But it turns out that somebody who writes a story, you know, isn't going to repeat the word run, you know, 10 times in the story. Like in the, you know, the Dick and Jane books, which are kind of stereotypical of what was in the, you know, the baby boomers learned to read with. So I use these digital analysis to really look at in stories. Because, see, I think we've often typically used stories in reading instruction. And it turns out if they're well-crafted stories, they're gonna have a lot of synonyms. 
So what I did is look at, are there particular categories of words that characterize stories? And, you know, we used to do a lot of words work around story structure. And it turns out that the setting for stories, the way in which a plot develops, there are certain kinds of things that are really important in stories, like um, the trait of a character or the way in which a character might communicate. And an author is unlikely to keep using that same word over and over again. So I was actually able to identify what some of those key areas were, like motion. And I identified the key words around motion, like go, stop, begin. What I've established is that those key ideas, like the motions, the way in which people communicate, if I say that some, my character is scheming rather than planning, the author's telling you something there. Or if they're arguing rather than stating, that's a clue in terms of the direction which that story is going to go. So there are these you know, traits, emotions, motion, um, movement, and ways of communicating. And there are about five or six words that are key to each of these categories. And I've actually developed a text project, which is my, um, my not-for-profits website. At text project, you can actually get lessons for you know, 20 words that appear, a, 20, excuse me, 20 concepts that appear a lot in stories that have to do with motion, uh, emotions, communication, and traits. And what I've found is the main words are ideas kids know, you know, like, you know, stop, go, but you don't know, um, you might not know the word terminate. So, but could we build from those known words, you know, these networks of, of synonyms that are likely to appear in stories? And I think that that's very doable. So that's, those are narratives. And you can really get a sense of what those, those words are that are likely to be really important in the story. Communication is really important. How characters move. Things were told about the traits of the character very different structures in informational text. You know, um, a text on the House of Representatives or on Congress is going, to be, is going to be very different. You know, they're going to be kind of nodes of key ideas that are important. So I think that um, that raises a lot I think exciting opportunities in terms of vocabulary instruction. I think the insight for kids that there are going to always be some words and stories that are going to, you know, might not know, but I'm going to know the basic ideas. In informational text, some of those nodes, you know, like if I'm looking at solvents or mixtures, I might not know about that yet, you know, but there are going to be a cluster of ideas, and in an informational text, the author is going to keep repeating some of those key ideas because that's what they're trying, that's really the purpose of their text, right? In a story, they're creating a plot, a mood, and they're going to use a, a palette of words to do that.
it's not neither of them is right or wrong it's just different and it's important to understand that so how would you approach teaching vocabulary different than if you're teaching vocabulary for a narrative text versus an, an informational text well when i look at a narrative text what i look at is for example i'm thinking of a, a piece by uh, john steinbeck um, in travels with charlie and he's describing an approaching storm and he uses a lot of language about the ominousness of the storm about kind of the the um fear that might be um, generated as the storm approaches okay so i'm going to look for some of those key ideas related to the theme and in an informational text i'm going to look at what the really fundamental ideas are so if it was as an informational text about a storm you know we might be distinguishing between different kinds of storms or different kinds of clouds that might tell you something about the storm so that's different about the trepidation that the characters might be feeling in a story about an approaching storm than the content that's going to tell you some things about the kind of storm or how you can predict the storm. I'm curious, how does it, well, it seems that, um, you know, like Lexile and text levels and, you know, formulas for text complexity are very popular right now. How does, um, you know, how does what we're talking about vocabulary apply to text complexity? Vocabulary is central to text complexity. Unfortunately, the systems that we have right now don't do a very good job of telling you what what the vocabulary is. Um, honestly, Jake, that would be a whole nother podcast to really get to the center of that. But let's just say that we could get much better information than we're currently getting because we have this access to these digital files, right? And, and we can, we also know characteristics of words that are more complex for students than other ones and we can actually apply algorithms to text to tell you that we haven't been and um in in a re recent study that i've done um we actually found that in level books the the um, vocabulary measure from from the lexile framework and decoding were absolutely flat across first grade levels. There wasn't variation. And in other work that I've done with colleagues like Jim Cunningham and Heidi Ann Mesmer in looking at lexiles, you know, that the length of a sentence is a better predictor than the vocabulary of how hard the of of how of how hard it's said to be, but that's not the case for the reader. For the reader, it's all about ideas. It's all about the words. Now that doesn't mean that having, you know, a complex sentence with lots of phrases in it, it can't be challenging for kids. But I'm saying if you don't know what the words are, it doesn't matter how long that sentence is. 
Yeah, I um, I was just reading earlier today. It was an article. Oh shoot, I can't remember who it was by, but they were talking about you know differentiating between text complexity and text difficulty, and, and you know we we have these ways to try and measure text complexity, but it's really text difficulty that we need to be more concerned with, which is how the ideas and the concepts are received by students and whether those ideas are are transparent or o opaque within the text. And this, you know then. The text can be simple, but if it's talking about complex ideas, it's still going to be a challenging text um, for that student. It was a Amendum, Conrady Smith, and somebody else, but it was a it was a review of of um, text complex. They did, I think, it was twenty. Yeah, I think I might have been the somebody else. Was it you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. There we go. Then Amendum Hebert and and Conrady yeah. Smith are those yeah. know, those three names. But yeah. So there's a difference between what how somebody predicts the text is going to be, that's text complexity, and then how hard it actually is for the reader, which is difficulty. And, you know, one of the things that comes into it, right? I mean, the best predictor of comprehension is what I know about the topic. So, and, and, oh, and the words represent the content. So the vocabulary is going to be a big predictor of how well I'm going to do with the text. Which is why we want to keep expanding the knowledge networks our students have. One of the things that we really want to do is get our kids to be experts in things. What is it that you know about that I could learn from you? That's a really important um, way of thinking about, about things. So then what does all this mean for our English language learners? The thing with English language learners is that they have the basic concepts in their native language, they don't have the English labels. So one of the things that we want to be, everything that I've talked about, um, you know, I, I live in California. I was a teacher of English language learners. Uh, to me, this is all about English language learners. Um, but one of the things that I do talk about in the book is that there are certain strengths that English language learners bring. One of them actually is that they're typically more aware of the linguistic system, especially the sounds of language. So building on what students are good at and recognizing that there are ideas in their native language, it's not that they are blank slates, they know a lot, and it's finding those, those um, areas of knowledge and recognizing them. And also being sensitive to the fact that, you know, English um, is got these different systems, and that means it takes a while to get good at it. it it's, it's not a transparent language. And I think that some recognition of that on the part of, of educators is really important. But I'm especially um, an advocate of recognizing what it is that students do bring to the task and not regarding their lack of um, having a particular label in another language to mean that they lack the concept. That's a really important. 
So we've covered a lot of ground and we've definitely sprinkled in, you know, how what this looks like in practice throughout, but um, what are, can you give us, my teacher audience, some ideas of how uh, teaching vocabulary in this way would look like in practice? Well, throughout the book, I've identified several consistent practices, these small changes. The most important thing I think you can do with students is to have conversations about how language works and not expect them to have formal definitions you know, and to memorize you know, prefixes and suffixes and root words and so on. So I think a very important thing in a text project, I, you know, everything at text project is open access. That means it's free. And there are examples that I have there of, of text. And when we do you know, state uh, summative assessments, I think it's really important for kids to have seen some examples from some, some summative assessments to see the common words, you know, the, the, what I call the core vocabulary, the words that account for about 90 to 92% of the words in the text. And then to see that sprinkled among those are some unknown words. And I can use my knowledge of decoding, morphology, and also the context in which the word occurs. I'm not talking about using pictures. I'm talking about using the inter-sentence context and the intra-sentence context to figure out words. So I think those conversations are very, very critical. A second thing that I advocate strongly is what I call word collection. I'm an incredible fan of mind maps. And what I want to see in classrooms are word maps that aren't just random, you know, that look at these different kinds of networks that we've talked about, including the multiple meaning networks. You know, let's find some words that have a lot of different meanings, especially in different content areas. You know, like if you think of a word like power or force, those words have some very different meanings in different content areas. Okay, so that's another thing. A third one is what I call core reading lessons. And I think these can be short and sweet, but I think some of the things that we've talked about today need to be the focus of explicit overview. And then we're gonna actually look at the text we're reading to see if we see some examples. Keep remembering that we've known this definitively around um, decoding for a long time. If I'm being taught something, it really helps if I'm actually seeing that in the text that I'm reading. So, you know, this particular text, I'm, I'm thinking of um, me and Uncle Romy, where that text has, it's about a collage artist, right? A boy who goes to stay with his uncle who's a collage artist. And it turns out there are just a lot of compound words in that text, which kind of makes sense because it's about making art, right? And putting things together in a collage. And um, so I might, you know, have a conversation about compounding before I do that. Um, so that's a third thing. And then the fourth is ensuring that kids read a lot. And I'm um, not a fan of just random reading. 
it doesn't mean that I'm always prescribing as a teacher. What I'm meaning by that is I'm scaffolding and curating as a teacher. I view what we do as teachers as curators. You know, we uncover for kids things that they might not otherwise know. If you look at the, um, what American kids are reading from, what is that, Renaissance program? You know, like Wimpy Kid just like gets far too much. That, that's a great book to be reading at home. Here in our classroom, these are the kinds of books that, we're, that I'm really supporting you to read. Doesn't mean that you have to only read this, but I'm making available some different kinds of books. And then what I'm really encouraging you to do is I'm really encouraging you to get good at a topic so that we know you're the expert on ancient Egypt. You know, and um, he's a real expert on um, growing organic things. Or she's a real expert on this kind of technology. So I want kids to have the opportunity to use independent reading time in school to develop a sense of what's out there. I think a lot of our kids don't get what the power of text is. And until you do, until you started to learn things, I think um, you'll never be a great reader. That's powerful. I love that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about text, uh, text Project and, and what you do there and some of the resources available for teachers online? Well, we've um, had Text Project for 20 years now. And it's, um, there, there are a couple different buckets. So there's a place for teachers, there's a place for researchers, there's a place for parents. And we also have a YouTube site. Um, and, you know, under the research part, there are just about anything I've ever thought is, is there, has been written. I, I, and a lot of things I've forgotten about are, that are there. And the parent site, I worked with Pat Cunningham, who I think is just possibly the best curriculum thinker in the country. And she took some of our instructional resources, some of our text resources, and made lessons around them. Okay, so there's some good material there. And then under the teacher part, there are the lessons on vocabulary that I've talked about, like the synonyms. But there are also um, five or six different kinds of books, texts. They're all ebooks, but they're all there for, for um, individuals to use. And typically what I've done is none of them is a complete comprehensive program, but what I've done is used my research. So when I, you know, have the things that I've talked about today, I use my research to actually create a model of how the text could be. For example, one of them is called Talking Points for Kids. And it's a set of different types of texts around a topic, like should animals be in zoos? And then there's something called FYI for kids. They're short articles on a host of topics that are really important as background knowledge for comprehension in any subject areas and in narrative. Okay. And the one that I'm most excited about that we just finished is called um, um, The Story of Words. And there's 16 books divided into inventions, how words work, you know, like um, abbreviations, 
acronyms, things like that. And then the influence of different languages like Arabic, um, Chinese, Japanese, native languages, you know, how those, you know, we talked about the, the Germanic, the, the Latin, and the Greek, but, you know, we got a lot of, we both live in states, where did those names come from, like Utah and California, right? So, um, actually, in the case of California, no one quite knows, but um, <laughs> Utah is a little clearer. You know, so we have, what, half of the states in, the, in our country, the names actually come from native languages? I think that's right. It might be 24, it might be 26. So, so those books, I think, are just, oh, I think I've forgotten one other part. Um, themes, like how do we get the names for different kinds of clothes, which I think is really fascinating. Fascinated by, you know, words, where they come from and how we got them. So that's what Text Project is. And if people ever buy anything with my name on it, that money goes back into Text Project. So that's, that's what my commitment is. My husband and I are committed to supporting future generations. That's fantastic. And I, I can't highly recommend text project enough. Um, you know, the article day stuff's great. And then I, the, you know, there's books you've written on there for free. You know, I, I read um, yes, silent reading and stamina and the digital world that really changed my thinking around my role as, as supporting comprehension and fluency in the classroom. And so I, I, I encourage everyone to check it out. It's a great website. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. And thank you so much, Jake, for this opportunity. What do you think it takes to make a great teacher, Dr. Freddie Hebert? Well, I'm a teacher. And when I go into an event like this, anytime I speak to people, anytime I hold a class, I always have a little piece of yellow paper with my intention on it. So I think you have to have a vision and a goal for who you want human beings to be. I think it's about values. I love that. I think it's about intentionality. Dr. Freddie Hebert, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jake, for this opportunity. It was great. A great big thank you to Dr. Hebert for being so generous with her time to join us. Doesn't she have just such a great way to say what she wants to say? It's very eloquent. Uh, Somehow it gives me comfort that someone who wrote a book on teaching words has such a firm command over words herself. If you hear some noise in the background, I, uh, I had to just get out of the house. It was such a beautiful day, so I'm taking my mobile office out in my yard. And so if you hear some... I've got a neighbor weed whacking and some birds in the background. So just enjoy the, uh, we'll just call it white noise of, um, you know, spring life. So instead of two one cent pieces, today you're going to get one two cent piece for me from me today. I was really struck by the book Teaching Words and How They Work. And then, of course, my interview with Dr. Hebert. And there were two quotes that really struck me um, as, as very important as kind of the crux of what of what she's trying to say. So the first one, and she said this very early on in the interview, is that words aren't individual islands floating on them by themselves. And the other one, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that she says the way we've traditionally taught words is like not teaching students the algorithms for math and then expecting them to tackle complex story problems. 
So let the weight of both of those sink in for a second. How isolating is vocabulary instruction in many classrooms? And if it's not isolating in your classroom, kudos to you, but I will be the first one to admit that I am guilty of teaching words as islands. And at times I've tried to do rather big islands in my instruction, but they've been islands nonetheless. So let's explore Dr. Hebert's analogy a little bit. I would never, ever teach multiplication facts by starting with 8 times 6 and then having students move to 3 times 7 and then we're going to learn 12 times 9 and the reason we learned those three multiplication facts is because those will be the three multiplication facts that will be needed to complete the math assignment today. And I certainly wouldn't expect students just to memorize those without a conceptual understanding of you know what multiplication is as groups of numbers. But that's exactly what a more traditional approach to vocab instruction is advocating for, is that you teach the random words that will help the students understand the text that they're going to read right now with no concern for the structure of those words or how those words are related to other words. I feel it's a very uh, short-sighted, um, just kind of an, a very immediate, like what's going to help my student right here, right now to understand this text, rather than a broader look of, how can I really support the language that my student can understand and then also that they can produce? So let's, let's do it different. Let's become a little bit better at teaching literacy in this aspect. Let's start teaching words as networks or as nodes of words. With what we know about schema theory and construction integration theories about text, it seems reasonable to assume that a student can learn eight connected words or eight networked words much quicker than it can learn eight random words. So right off the bat, just by teaching networked words instead of isolated words, the volume of what's potential for our students, for us to teach and have our students understand just increased significantly just by teaching words as networks rather than isolated islands. Let's also start teaching how these words work. And I'm not just talking about memorizing lists of prefixes and suffixes, but let's teach how words can be remixed and how they can be recycled and how compound words work and how German, French, and Latin have influenced English. You know, the, the, the subtitle of her book is Small Changes for Big Results. And one thing that she does so fantastically throughout the book is at the end of every chapter, there's just a little insert of how adjusting how just doing a small tweak could help uh, could help leverage what she's talking about in that chapter so she's not talking about reinventing the wheel here but including conversations about you know oh this word this word has more of a French influence so what do we know about you know words that we've talked that that um, that have more of a French influence we know that students who learn to decode words become better readers and despite the irregularities that, you know, the letter combinations to make words have in English, we still teach the code of English because it's fairly systematic and because it helps students learn to read. Let's go a step further. We need to start teaching students the linguistic code of English. Because once students un the, understand the linguistic code to English, something that was very opaque becomes all of a sudden more transparent. And then students aren't relying on, you know, the teacher or just themselves to, you know, infer words in the meaning of text. They'll have this vast background knowledge of how these words work so they can place new words within their, you know, emerging networks of how words work. 
I really think if we do this right, I can see reading instruction having a significant shift within our classroom. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Uh, it has just been a fantastic ride through, you know, what, 12 episodes now. I've appreciated all of the listeners and the outreach I've had, and also that there's so many people out there that are willing to hear what research has to say about literacy and try to implement it in our classrooms. So thank you so much again for listening. Uh, feel free to reach out to me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, let's go and teach words and reading just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.